according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, join me one more time in um, the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. Although we will be... Uh, Bringing in the Matthew and or the uh, yeah John chapter twelve. Let's just go to there. How about that? We're dealing with the last uh, paragraph of chapter eleven, first paragraph of chapter twelve, and we're also relating it over to um, Matthew twenty six and Mark fourteen. So we may bring in a couple of verses from there just to um, flesh out the details on this. We have a dinner in the home of. Uh, well, John doesn't tell us it's Simon's home, but we know that from Matthew and Mark. Uh, he's returned to the village of Mary and Martha. It says in John 11:55, the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to this feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And, uh, and then the story here where Mary takes the perfume and anoints his, his feet. All right, we've got a good start on this last week. I think we can wrap it up this week and be prepared to start a new section uh, next week. That is the final week at Jerusalem. And uh, this is a significant milestone in the Life of Christ series. I think the, the Galilean ministry is the largest overall section. The last Judean and Perean ministry is a fairly significant section. And uh, this is the last episode there. And then next week we will begin the... Uh, final week at Jerusalem section, which has almost as many events in one week that the Galilean ministry had in, in about two years. So uh, there'll be a lot of details and a lot of things to study, a lot of messages that uh, we'll have to break down. The Upper Room Discourse, Mount Olivet Discourse, a lot of teaching in the final week. But we are uh, on the verge of starting the Passion Week, which is pretty cool. It's only taken us how many lessons? What is today? 317? Okay, well, that's, that's about right. So we'll do another 300 maybe on the Passion Week, and we'll, uh, you're not going to, have you switched notebooks yet? Okay. You're about to, though, aren't you? And Gina was saying, uh, how much more do we have to go? Because she's she's, this whole series has been in the same notebook, and now it's on the verge of being filled. Well, all right. Tell you what, let's start with some prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll get to our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your word, the privilege we have to assemble together. And Father, we just look to you to uh, provide once again uh, the clear teaching of your word. Father, that uh, those who are assembled here today or anyone perhaps listening on MP3 uh, around the world years from now, who knows. But Father, any believer listening and receiving this instruction, Father, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Minister your word to glorify your son. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Let's just run through the outline and then we'll pick up where we left off. We have uh, really the bulk of what we're going to deal with today in main point seven. 
Uh, this is the third explicit reference to Passover in the Gospel of John. We're actually very thankful for the Gospel of John that gives us these Passover references. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, chapter 6 and verse 4, and now this one in chapter 11 and verse 55. There is a fourth feast that's mentioned in John 5, 1 that is usually thought of as a Passover, and I agree with that. I agree with that tradition, although the word Passover does not appear there. I believe that is the Passover, is the feast that's mentioned in John 5, 1. And so that gives us four Passovers for the ministry of Christ and uh, a three and a half year uh, schedule to, uh, to uh, understand with that. Secondly, um, the issue with all these guys showing up early, even up to a week early, was for the purpose of ceremonial purification, things on the road that could leave them defiled or other uh, events or activities that could leave them defiled. And so they, they made sure that they arrived in town extra early, allowing for the uh, even up to an entire week that could be spent uh, in the purification processes with the right uh, offerings, the right sacrifices and so forth to prepare for the uh, Passover coming up next Friday. Remember when it says this is now six days before Passover, that means six days before the cross. Okay, Six days before he bears our sins and accepts the wrath of God <coughs> on, uh, on Golgotha. Thirdly, <coughs> the crowds were anxious to see whether he would come or not. You want to relate this back to the previous Passover where he skipped it entirely. He went up and uh, fed 5,000 on a mountain east of the, uh, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and then uh, the, the fall after that, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, he did not make an immediate appearance, but he went in rather uh, secretly. And then in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles is when he started teaching and the events there. Uh, you can read through John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 and, uh, and review those particular details. But the, uh, the main episode that takes place here <coughs> is stated specifically in John 12:1 as being six days before the Passover. And that's, that's precise. That is precise language. This locks it in on when this event takes place. And we've got to do a little bit of detective work with this because there can appear to be a contrast here. So this is Saturday, six days before Passover. Uh, in the Hebrew dating, it's then Nisan 8. Christ will be crucified on Nisan 14, which is the Passover date. Uh, we gave you some notes on Bethany. Uh, this is the home of G uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, although the dinner we're studying today was not in that home. The dinner was actually in the home of Simon the leper, and we see that when we bring in the parallel record in Matthew and, uh, and Mark. Also, Bethany is where he's going to stay every night. Uh, during the Passion Week, he'll actually commute. He'll go out to Bethany for each night, come back in in the morning. So uh, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday. The, the only night he won't is going to be Thursday night. He's going to have the dinner Thursday in the upper room with his disciples. And then instead of going back to Bethany, he will actually uh, go to the garden. And, uh, and then he will wait to be arrested and, uh, and go through a number of trials through the night and into Friday morning. Bethany is also the place of his ascension uh, where it's located there on the Mount of Olives. All right. Well, we spent longer than I thought it would take, but we, we spent some time last week to at least show you how to harmonize some of these gospel records. Uh, the dinner mentioned here by John is recorded by Matthew and Mark on the night Judas contracts for Jesus' Jesus's murder. And so there's a question. Why in the gospel of John does it say this dinner was here on Saturday? 
before the triumphal entry. Okay, which, by the way, we're going to study that. We're going to teach about Palm Monday, and uh, we got all the, the tradition about Palm Sunday. But we'll talk about the triumphal entry on Palm Monday and so forth. Uh, but it's mentioned here in John 12 as being on Saturday, and yet in the Matthew record and the Mark record, it's recorded on Wednesday. Okay, now that's a problem. Uh, did this dinner happen on Sunday or Saturday, or did it happen on Wednesday, or were there two dinners? Uh, because if it's, the, if it's the same event being recorded by Matthew, Mark, and John, if it's the very same event, then it had to have happened on either Saturday or Wednesday. Okay, It's an either-or. And uh, if, uh, if that's the case, then we appear to have a, a discrepancy. We have to say that John was wrong, or we have to say that Matthew was wrong, or Mark was wrong. And uh, the minute you accept that one of these guys is wrong, then you have uh, an error in your Bible which is unacceptable. So we did some work on this. I believe that the references in Matthew and Mark are not referring to the dinner itself, but they are describing that dinner as a flashback. They're describing that, mem- that dinner as an explanation for the motivation in, on the night in which Judas contracts for the betrayal. And so I think the, the language here in both Matthew and Mark allows for that pretty clearly. In, in Matthew uh, 26, for example, go ahead and turn over there. This is worth, uh, we did some extent on this last week, but it's worth looking at it again. There is, by the way, another episode in the Gospel of Luke that's unrelated to this. It's a separate dinner entirely. But this is what you do in the harmony of the Gospels. You look at the different records and you say, all right, are these two accounts or three accounts of the same event or is it a different event? And uh, with, with Luke's record, we, we clearly have to conclude it's a, it's a different event. Okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's a harlot instead of Mary. Uh, it's in Galilee instead of Bethany. It's during the Galilean ministry instead of right before the Passion Week. So uh, obviously they're different events, and we don't have any issue with that. Uh, but the Matthew and Mark records, uh, we conclude, are identical to the John records. So... Matthew, Mark, and John are all recording the same precise event. <laughs> and so, if, in fact, if you even wanted to make a mark in your chronology, in your um, Harmony of the Gospels, go ahead and put a mark there to indicate that what is listed as Final Week at Jerusalem, episode number 15, is the same as our episode here today, uh, Last Judean and Prean Ministry, episode 41. It's the same exact event. And we should think of it as a flashback. John gives the best chronology, placing the dinner before the triumphal entry. Matthew and Mark, they write about the very same dinner, but they don't write about it until Wednesday night, until the night that Judas contracts for the betrayal. And they describe the dinner as a flashback in context. So when you look at Matthew 26... And and I think it's helpful that we have explicit date references here. He says in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. He's giving them this message on Wednesday. And the Son of Man is to be handed over for the crucifixion. Um, So that's the time reference for chapter 26. We have a a change though in verse 6. It says, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and this is a way of referencing back to that Saturday, to the day that he first arrived at Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And a woman came to him with an alabaster vial. 
So we have a time reference in verse six that allows us fairly now in the in the text allows us to view this as a separate time than the actual Wednesday being described. And the reason why it's being described as the explanation, verses 6 through 13, is given as the explanation for why Judas, in verse 14, goes out to contract for the betrayal. Matthew 26, 14, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. So both in Matthew and in Mark, on the night that Judas contracts for the betrayal, both authors choose that night to describe the reasons why Judas contracted for the betrayal. That's why it's not listed till Wednesday night in those records. But John gives us the best chronology, placing the dinner before the triumphal entry. John, by the way, does not describe this bargain and this contract. Uh, Nowhere in John 12 is that described there for Judas uh, arranging for that that price on Wednesday night. All right. Uh, under point C, we, we highlighted how Luke does not detail this anointing. He did previously describe a different occasion during the Galilean ministry, and that was Galilean ministry episode 22. And uh, we accept that that was a, a separate independent episode and uh, unrelated to this episode, even though there are similarities in uh, a dinner and an anointing and a complaint about how costly the perfume is all right point d then this dinner was hosted by simon the former leper and it featured lazarus the former dead guy lazarus the former dead guy you know as i started looking at this too though it says he was in the home of don't say simon the former leper it says simon the leper jesus was in bethany at the home of simon the leper and i'm starting to wonder Maybe he's not a former leper. <clears throat> Maybe he was a leper that um, <coughs> was not the will of God to be healed. <coughs> Excuse me. I try to be. I try to be consistent in the terminology, and if it does not say former leper, then. Uh, why do we read former leper into it? I think it's not legitimate to do so in most cases. It's like Rahab the harlot. Everybody assumes it's Rahab the former harlot. The text never says that. Okay. In any event, um, we can think of him as Simon the leper or Simon the former leper. We really don't know much about this particular Simon. It's probably the most common male uh, name in the gospel records. Uh, there were tons of Simon, including Simon Peter and um, even the father of Iscariot was, was Simon, uh, which I find interesting because this is, there is such a close connection with Judas Iscariot here. So could this have been uh, Judas Iscariot's father? We don't know. We have more questions than answers. Anyway, the dinner was hosted by Simon the leper, but it featured Lazarus, the former dead guy. Uh, Jesus and Lazarus were both Guests of honor at this dinner, seated in this respectful position, being served. And uh, they're going to draw quite a bit of attention. In fact, the aftermath of this dinner is going to spark a follow-up the next day. And uh, crowds will gather, not in the evening or the nighttime after the dinner's over, but I believe the next day when we look at uh, John chapter 12. Saturday is the Sabbath, but on Sunday... Uh, we're told 
in John 12, 9, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I get the idea that between the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11 and this event here in John chapter 12, uh, Lazarus has been keeping a pretty low profile. We understand that. But now Jesus is back in town. They've had a formal dinner in the home of Simon the leper. And it appears to be that uh, Lazarus is once again available for public uh, viewing and and uh, fellowship and teaching. You know, it's kind of interesting. We've got this tradition of, of a public viewing when a, uh, a cadaver has been prepared for, for burial. Uh, but here's a public viewing for a guy that's not a cadaver anymore. For a guy, they said, unwrap him. And, and uh, you know, he's come out of the, You see what I'm saying? It's kind of funny. But I think at the end of chapter 11, we see the hostility. and We believe that um, Lazarus has stayed pretty, uh, pretty private. If I can spot it here at the end of... Uh, see, Lazarus comes forth and we see... Um, in chapter 11, verse, what am I looking for? Lazarus come forth is verse 43. And then many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which he had done. And so uh, already there's uh, hostility. The Pharisees are beside themselves in 1147. What are we doing? This man is performing many, many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And, uh, and they're, they're viewing this as a problem, see. And so when we get to John chapter 12, and once uh, this dinner takes place in the home of Simon, then uh, this large crowd, verse 9, large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only. There are now two attractions to come and to observe. But uh, that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And what a final weekend. What a final ministry opportunity on this last Sunday before he goes to the cross. The final Sunday before Easter Sunday. All right. Uh, Jesus is going to have ministry opportunity with someone who has been raised from the dead. Okay. And you talk about a, an opportunity to proclaim the gospel before, before Easter Sunday. Goodness. Well, and this is going to spark more hostility. So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Let's go ahead and kill him too. Uh, we already have a plan to kill Jesus, so let's go ahead and kill Lazarus. And a lot of this I, I find hilarious. I wonder what the debate was like. You know, what was the conversation like? And was there any dissent among the Pharisees? And did anybody say, you know, um, he was dead once already. What, you know, we try to kill him again. And we think it's really going to stick. Or, you know, <laughs> you know how, do you, uh, how do you plot the murder of someone that's come back from the dead once already? So uh, anyway, we, we got more questions and answers on this. Final detail on this dinner. Once again, we just like we saw in Luke chapter 10, there's Martha. What's she doing? Busy working in the kitchen. And what's Mary doing? Well, she's once again, she's at Jesus' feet. And uh, in the um, Luke 10 episode, which was episode 9 in the last Judean and Prean ministry, uh, the, the story of Mary and Martha, Mary was at his feet listening, learning, uh, taking in Bible class. In this episode, she's at his feet, actually anointing his feet. And... Um, I think, weeping over the, the pending death about to take place. All right. 
Uh, I guess that's the last we'll deal with the details on the dinner. Other than DeSander, point six, John records Judas's indignation. In the Gospel of John, verses four through six, Judas is pinpointed as being the one who has the biggest issue with this perfume being wasted. However, when we read the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, it's clear that there are additional disciples that share the same sentiments. All right. John records Judas's indignation, but Matthew and Mark record additional disciples with a similar sentiment. And so uh, we don't want to just hang this all on Judas. Um, they all had similar similar views. Man, this is pricey stuff. This is absolutely pricey stuff. This could be sold. This could this could uh, provide relief to the poor. Okay, and I imagine the other disciples had a legitimate concern in that regard. Judas only used it as a smokescreen uh, because he was he was skimming profits off uh, off of the donations. So he said this, uh, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So, you know, he could have sold it for 300 and then donated 200 to the poor and, uh, you know, pocketed the skimmed whatever he thought he could get away with kind of a thing. All right. You know, it is kind of interesting. Let me just get over here and see. These are, these other records are pretty similar. Matthew 26. You know, when money gets involved, and sometimes people get kind of... I'm thankful, actually. This building project has been good, and I think believers have been able to stay focused on spiritual things. And, you know, still occasionally there's a conversation when you have to stop and reorient and say, wait a minute, slow down. Let's make sure here. And so there it is again. The disciples, plural, were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And so as disciples, plural, we presume that includes Judas, but then others beyond Judas. And a uh, similar statement in Mark 14. Some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? So uh, Judas is not alone, even though John singles him out here in this regard. Uh, we actually, we were very blessed on Sunday. We had bunches of visitors here on Sunday. And, and um, of course, nobody knows, but the, only the treasurer knows who handed him the check. But um, I announced Sunday night that uh, David Pickett was handed a check for the purchase of 200 new chairs to, to fill this auditorium. And we're thankful for that. We're rejoicing in that. We, we've received grace. We want to extend grace. And so when the conversation turned to, well, what are we going to do with these gray ones? kind of a thing, then, uh, uh, you know, a couple of ideas. Well, you know, we could sell them or we could put a note on Craigslist or see if someone needs them kind of a thing. And then all of a sudden the, the, the dawning of, wait a minute, stop, grace, we've received grace, freely we receive, freely we should give. Um, let's see if Live Oak wants these chairs back. <laughs> you know, they were so gracious towards us and so uh, patient and so uh, loving. Anyway, so we're going to offer these chairs to Live Oak. And uh, and so forth. But that's the idea. It's grace. It's all grace. If God provides us grace, how would we not be gracious towards others? How uh, how wicked would that be? You understand. Different things there. All right. Point seven. Here is something that gets misquoted so often. 
the poor you will have with you always. What's Jesus saying here? Point seven. Jesus' message establishes a significant distinction between habitual ministry occasions, such as the poor you will have with you always, habitual ministry occasions, and unique ministry occasions. This is what he's doing. He draws a contrast. I think when people quote it, they said, the poor you will have with you always. And that's where they stopped the quote. They failed to take it the rest of the way in what Jesus was really saying there. Establishing a significant distinction between habitual ministry occasions and unique ministry occasions. And we need to be mindful of these. And the expressions are very similar, almost identical, whether you want to look at the Matthew, the Mark, or the John account. So let's just stay in John here. He says in John 12, verses 7 and 8, Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone. That's a rebuke. Their disapproval of what she was doing was not right. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Not just the oil she was uh, using on this particular day, but she was going to keep this activity up on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um... And then on the day of the burial, you know, if they wanted to confiscate it all today and go sell it, would have left her none to uh, to apply on the day of the burial. Would you not say that the burial of Jesus Christ is a unique ministry occasion? (laughs) All right. A unique ministry occasion. And that's not to dismiss the other. The other is legitimate. And it. It, it, it should continue, and it does continue. It's habitual. Okay? There are always needs. There are always hospitality needs and benevolence needs and, and other things. There will never be an occasion in the ministry between now and the millennium when there are not needs in the congregation. But don't confuse those with the unique ministry opportunities and the occasions there that must be redeemed. And if they're not, it's the one and only shot you got at it. All right. If you don't redeem that opportunity, then it's gone as a unique realm for application. So let's see some things related to this. And this is really the bulk of what we're looking at here today. <clears throat> First of all, believe, sub point A, believers and unbelievers will have their regular times and their opportune times. This had previously been a Subject that Jesus uh, developed in John 6, I'm sorry, John chapter 7 and verse 6, when the brothers were encouraging him to go up to Jerusalem and make a splash, he said, my opportune time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. So there's applications for this with both believers and unbelievers alike. We need to understand what are the regular times? What are the opportune times? In particular for us, because we're the ones that are going to have very limited occasions. For an unbeliever, maybe it's a little bit more universal because uh, they are citizens of this world. My opportune time. It's the difference between kairos and chronos. And if you recall the teaching we did back in this chapter, there's, there's different vocabulary differences for time itself. And then the opportune times, the right times, the precise moments, those occasions that are in the will of God for something to take place. All right. And so 
the Lord has already given reference to this, and it's, it is applicable for both believers and unbelievers alike. Secondly, open doors and wide open doors is another way that the Scripture describes this concept. What is your opportune time? Well, it's an open door. Open doors and wide open doors are important for believers to pay attention to. Scripture describes both. Acts 14.27, 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12. Open doors and wide open doors. If Jesus Christ opens a door for you, what's the will of God? That's right. Absolutely. And if he opens it wide, what does that mean? Yeah, bring friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Meaning it should be very obvious. Meaning, man, it's a, it's a wide open door. Not just an open door, a wide open door. Acts 14, 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12. And open door opportunities. This is when Jesus Christ lays before you an open door. When he lays before you a ministry. This is the variety. These are the varieties of ministries that are presented before believers. And gifted believers should be pursuing these ministry opportunities. These are venues in which effects can be manifested in unbelievable ways. All right. Acts 14, 27. First missionary journey and they come back and they report. Offers an encouragement. They returned to, uh, they sailed to Antioch from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished, the effects. And the effects had been uh, achieved. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. This is another... uh, facet that we can recognize that open door opportunities uh, should be broadcast. They should be shared. They should be informed. Other believers ought to uh, have information related to those open doors uh, so that they can pray uh, appropriately, so that they have an opportunity possibly to join in uh, with financial support. or They might be able to offer some other type of logistical supply or if nothing else, like I say, they're just praying and interceding and supporting through prayer. And that then when they get additional news related to how those open doors are redeemed, they can share in the celebration. They can share in the rejoicing. It is a tremendous encouragement to hear the positive things that are happening in other ministries and other churches. It's not anything to get jealous over. You don't get all gloomy because somebody else has an open door and God's doing great things down there. You rejoice all the more and say, praise the Lord. Rejoice over that. It allows for the thanksgiving to be multiplied. All right, 1 Corinthians 16.9 also uses the expression and an open door. And uh, what happens when there's an open door? Well, the adversary sees it too. Okay, he knows that the Lord just opened a door for you and he doesn't like it. And it says, um, with all of these hopes for travel plans, Paul hopes to arrive uh, after he uh, passes through Macedonia and he might even stay the winter, he hopes so. Doesn't want to stay just in passing, but he wants to stay for some time if the Lord permits. But he says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Cannot leave Ephesus prior to that. Why not? For a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. All right. 
there are many adversaries. So here we see the wide door, and along with that comes the intensification of the angelic conflict. Finally, then, 2 Corinthians 2.12. I think this is an illustration for sadness. What happens when a believer is not prepared to obey? Who does not redeem the open door because he's preoccupied with other things? And he actually will forsake fruit. He will forsake reward. And so it's interesting here. He says, um, right after he says that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He then goes on to confess one of those schemes of Satan that he fell for. This is a, this is a defeat for Paul. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord or by the Lord... However you want to take that dative of instrument or dative of sphere, either way. Jesus Christ opened this door. I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. He had an open door here and he didn't take it. Why? Because he was in such turmoil. He was in such grief. He was, uh, his soul was, was overwhelmed by the, the worries and the concerns for Titus. And his preoccupation with that caused him to decline, disobey, and not redeem the fruit that could have been born there in Troas. And uh, what's interesting is when you make a bad decision, for whatever reason, say, well, okay, I know it's wrong, but I want to do this. I know it's wrong, but um, I'll only do it just this one time because this is what I'm trying to achieve. Are you going to get what you're trying to achieve? Look over to chapter 7. <laughs> I think Paul confesses here in 7 5, 2 Corinthians 7 5, picking up the theme from chapter 2. Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. <laughs> no, it didn't work, did it? He should have stayed in Troas, should have quieted his heart. Should have gotten back in fellowship. He should have, well, should have, would have, and could have. Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He got graced out. He got graced out. We'll uh, we'll detail more on that coming up. But anyway, it is a it is a interesting situation. When uh, God gives us an open door and we say, yeah, but, yeah, but, I've got all these other things going on. You think God doesn't know that? <laughs> He's aware of that. You know, God's not up there in heaven saying, oh, 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 I forgot that. I'm sorry, my bad. Go find, go find Titus somewhere. No, he opened that door. All right. Open doors and wide open doors are important. Now, point C, the window of opportunity may not remain open for a very long period of time. If there is an open door, how long does it say open? How quickly do you need to jump through that door? You got a day to think about it? A couple of days to think about it? Why, uh, why does obeying God's Word take thought? 
<laughs> and, well, let me think through this. Okay. Now, this is, by the way, this is not consideration whether it's an open door or not. Don't get me wrong. That, that does take time. Considering and watching and praying, that does take time. Okay? You have to evaluate, is this the Lord opening this door? Or is this the adversary laying a trap out there that looks like an open door? Clearly, that does take time. But once you are under conviction that this is an open door, God has opened this door. It is his will for you to take this door. Once you have come to that conviction, how much more thought do you need? Why do you wait, dear brother? Okay. This is the, this is the assignment. This is what he has assigned for us to do. And look at this chain of verses here throughout the Gospel of John. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 12, 13, 14, 16, all these chapters. And the concept of what he gets across is that uh, time is short. Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. For just a little while longer I am with you. How much more time is that? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. When this season is complete, it's over. It's done. This is the one and only, it's a unique opportunity and the door is closing. John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. This is a finite time. How much longer is the light going to be in the world? How much longer is it going to be day? Night is coming. Night is coming. Chapter 12 and verse 35. The poor you will have with you always. You know, last week you had those opportunities. This week you have those opportunities. Next week you'll have those opportunities. The poor you will have with you always. But leave her alone. We also read down in verse uh, 35 of the same chapter. Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. Verse 36 also says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Chapter 13 and verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to you, to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. At least not now, but later, which he says in verse 36, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Chapter 14 and verse 19. A little while after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And then lastly, John 16, verses 16 through 19. You notice the imminency in all of these. The time is running out in all of these. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of the disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? <laughs> I don't get it. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 16. What's that? <laughs> what are you trying to say? You know, I don't know that, uh, that they're actually that thick. I think in some cases... Um, the Holy Spirit deliberately delayed until a significant point of time in which they could understand it. 
And we'll detail that when we get to uh, this upper room discourse here in John 16. But the point being, the window of opportunity may not remain open for a very long period of time. We need to observe the unique opportunities when they are presented. When they are presented. Again, back to this building. I think at a, at a critical juncture, Jesus Christ made it very clear that it was the opportunity to sell the Woodrow property and to build a new facility. That it was, it was time. The time had been approaching. The time had been approaching. But it became very clear that if we don't do it now, how long does that window stay open? See? You need to be sensitive to that. And uh, if in some cases it's a uh, step of faith, well, in every case it's a step of faith, right? <laughs> We're always just walking by faith and trusting the one who knows the end from the beginning. Now, even when the opportunity is present, even when the opportunity is present, this is point D, appropriate priorities and proportions must be maintained. Galatians 6.10 Even when the opportunity is present, say, all right, here's an open door. Wait a minute. You still have to be smart about what you're doing in your obedience. You still have to function in the wisdom that he supplies in the pursuit of these ministries. Even when the opportunity is present, appropriate priorities and proportions must be maintained. In other words, you can't just plunge through without thinking, without wisdom, without continued obedience to God's word and say, well, he opened the door. I'm just going to run through there. Wait a minute. Yes, he opened the door, but he also equipped you with the word of God to think with divine viewpoint and operate appropriately. There's, a, there's an important verse in Galatians 6.10. I want you to turn there and let's elaborate and see what I'm talking about. Pretty sure my new Bible has Galatians. Yeah, there it is. Galatians 6.10. All right. There is so much application here in this chapter, not only on an individual basis, but a corporate basis, and how we are to restore one another, how we are to bear one another's burdens, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That's a command. And uh, it may not be, uh, folks may resist that idea. Folks may be really leery about that verse. um, Because they kind of have this doctrine of privacy attitude that, oh, that's not my business. That's between them and the Lord. Private matters are private matters, but church matters are church matters. And this is an imperative. Then... um, the one, verse 6, the one who has taught the word is to share good things with the one who teaches them. So we see the interaction within a flock and, and different things there, support of pastors and so forth. Um, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And if you have the maladjusted attitude towards um, uh, spiritual resources and earthly resources, then uh, you're mocking God and you'll reap that harvest. 
The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Again, if you're maladjusted in spiritual things versus fleshly things, you're mocking God and you will face consequences. Verse 7, let us not lose heart in doing good. Here's another problem. Uh, worse than being uh, confused in the carnality-spirituality issue is the idea of actually losing heart and failing to endure and to achieve everything that He has for you. Losing heart and doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So you're appropriately oriented in terms of spiritual and earthly. You're appropriately oriented in terms of, of spiritual versus carnal. And you're, uh, you're bearing fruit. But then you fall short. You, you lose heart and you stop prior to the, uh, to the finish line. Then verse 10, So then, and this makes this kind of a uh, summary application that, that kind of encapsulates verses 1 through 9. So then, while we have opportunity, understand that. There it is, the open door, the opportunity, and it's legitimate. How much longer is it going to stay open? We don't know. But while it's there, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Notice that, especially. What does that mean? That means that we have priorities. That means that we have overall objectives, but then within those we have priorities. All right? Uh, we, we do have uh, do good to all people as a general rule. Yes, as we have opportunity, you bet. But in particular, especially those who are of the household of the faith. That is, believers, especially believers of this congregation. Okay? We prioritize believers of this congregation as the first and foremost in directing our assistance and directing our uh, benevolence and directing our, our ministry. And then beyond that, other believers of, say, like-minded ministries or like-minded fellowship or believers beyond this ministry but still connected to this ministry in some respects. Then beyond that, believers in general, worldwide. Beyond that, Unbelievers, you understand. And so what do we see here? We see priorities. We see proportions. Proportions. You have that also in First Timothy chapter 5. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay, so there you got elders. You got ruling elders, the, the elders who rule well, and especially the hardworking preachers and teachers. So there's proportions and there are priorities in that, in that context as well as this context here in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. All right, so this takes wisdom and this takes humility and this takes obedience and say, all right, this is an open door. But even while I'm going through this open door, how would you have me to serve? You need to have wisdom. You need to have discernment in uh, pursuing these open door ministries all right then the last point of study is point eight on sunday nissan nine lazarus became an additional attraction for folks an additional testimony for faith in jesus on sunday nissan nine lazarus became an additional attraction for folks and an additional testimony for faith in jesus we see that in John 12, verses 9 and 11. 
This reality became an additional occasion for the religious leaders to plot additional murder. Remember, when there's a wide open door, there are going to be many adversaries. Saw that just a little bit ago. So Lazarus becomes an additional attraction. Did he ask for it? Did he want it? No, but that's all right. So what's assigned to him? The formerly dead guy. And uh, a testimony. Unique. I mean, who else is going to give that witness? Okay, who else is going to give that testimony? And yet it also becomes an additional occasion for angelic conflict testing, for the attempted murder, for the hostility. You know, the thing that we consider in in the, the relocation of this building, we're going to have increased capacity. Increased capacity for ministry, capacity for service, capacity for giving, capacity for um, uh, missionary support, capacity for all kinds of things, for training. With that increased capacity comes what? Increased conflict. We expect that. And uh, we've already read these verses 9, 10, and 11 here in John chapter 12. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On account of him. Huh. Does, who does he think he is? We've got to stop this. This guy's bringing too many people to Jesus. We got, he's got to be stopped. And so it becomes a, a second point of conflict as far as the Pharisees are concerned. All right. Well, this uh, wraps it up. As I said, next week we'll be in uh, the final week of Jerusalem. We'll deal with Palm Monday. Uh, I realize the Catholics and that like to have Palm Sunday for their their liturgical calendar and all the rest of that. But uh, as far as I understand it, um, I don't see any valid reason to have a silent Wednesday in... uh, particularly when we have the explicit statements that Passover is now two days away. Um, in the traditional calendar where the Catholics like to have the Palm Sunday and they have a silent Wednesday, uh, it just doesn't work. I believe it's Palm Monday, and we have a very detailed day-by-day account, including Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, which is not silent, Thursday, and crucifixion on Friday. And uh, then the Sabbath, Saturday, and the resurrection on Sunday. So that's how we'll handle that and uh, get a chance to uh, get our first shot at that one week from today. Lord willing and rapture pending. Um, I am early. It's eight minutes early. Do we have any questions? Anything that, uh, um, anything you want to follow up on or anything at all? Judy? Mm-hmm. Spending too much and having having funds and and I do I think I think they even up to the night he was betrayed were still incredulous or still not believing it could, it could truly happen and I think Mary is interesting too because she uh, she's got experience at this she had prepared Lazarus for burial <laughs> you know uh, and 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 in preparing a body for burial you're leaving yourself unclean you know if you touch a body you're unclean and and yet she was she was preparing him for his burial yes ma'am.
Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was hard for all of them. Uh, I mean, the, the Messiah is to reign forever. What do you mean he's going to die? He can't die. They could not understand. They could not reconcile the suffering Christ to the reigning Christ. Right. And it's, it's, it's all too human. We, we do not like or accept what we don't want to listen to. Okay. It's not comfortable. We don't like it. Uh, he, he must not know what he's talking about or maybe, you know, something will change between now and then. Second Peter 1 says that the prophets who prophesied of old made careful searches and inquiries trying to determine what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he prophesied the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Nobody, not even the prophets, understood the, the, the first advent, second advent, suffering and glory. And they, and they came to not like the suffering saying. And so, yeah, I think all the disciples were in that same, in that same boat, yeah. He's the God of truth. He cannot lie. So if he said it, it's going to happen, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> All right. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your son. And Father, uh, I thank you for this study. 317 hours now in the life of Christ, Father. And, and uh, now next week we get, to, we get to reach Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, Father, and, and the children with the palm branches and singing Hosanna. And, uh, Father, what a joy and delight for those who had faith that here's their king, here's their Messiah. And uh, in the week, the Passion Week, day by day, and, uh, Father, leading up to the darkness for three hours on the cross. And, Father, we're just looking forward. There's, there's a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of meat. There's a lot of content, Father. The Upper Room Discourse, the Olivet Discourse, um, the Gethsemane uh, episode. There's so much coming up, Father. We want to... Uh, we want to Study and, and take the time with it and understand it for what it is, Father. It's the pinnacle of your plan, the centerpiece of your plan. And this week uh, puts it all into focus, and I thank you for that. Looking forward to seeing what you do. If you delay, if you allow us the, the time to complete this study, Father, the, uh, the doctrine we have coming up is going to be powerful, and I thank you for it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.